All right, y'all ready to study the word? Let's worship God together as we study uh, the Bible. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Acts chapter 16. All right, the plan originally was to cover all of Acts uh, chapter 16, and so I gave you a blank page for the notes this morning, and that blank page, it happens rarely, but when it happens, it tells you something. I'll just let you in on the secret. It tells you, I wasn't done by the time it was time to turn in the outline. Come Friday morning at 9.30, which is my deadline for turning in your notes, I still didn't know how am I gonna teach this entire passage in one shot. And I labored at that all weekend long, and I didn't give up the fight to try to teach this entire passage until 11 o'clock last night when I bailed and just said, I'm just gonna shorten the passage. Uh, So we're gonna slow down. It might mean that we don't get to cover necessarily everything in the book of Acts, and we might have to trim things on the back end before we start a new series uh, in some weeks. But all that to say, uh, the sermon title this morning is called The Gospel's Entourage. And we're going to read the passage as we move along. So an entourage, uh, for those of you who don't maybe use that word, I don't use that word a whole lot, is defined as a group of people who travel with and work for an important person. A group of people who travel with and work for an important person. Some of you might have seen the movie that came out several years ago. Clint Eastwood starred in it and he was a Secret Service guy uh, and the name of the movie was In the Line of Fire. And In the Line of Fire, the Secret Service agents had a code name for the president. And the code name for the president was just simply to call him Traveler. You know, travelers moving through Hall D or whatever. And they would notify each other where Traveler was so that they could all track and be aware of his movements. Well, the book of Acts, in a similar sense, the gospel is the traveler in the book of Acts. The gospel is in motion. Luke, sort of the the author of this book, he's got a camera crew, and the camera crew is traveling for 12 chapters with Peter and his entourage, and then Peter sort of exits stage left, and then here comes Paul, and Luke's camera crew follows Paul from chapter 13 on to the end of of the book, and so and, and what happens in between in all of those moments as this gospel entourage moves throughout the world, uh, the Roman Empire, is crazy things, awesome, wildly interesting things are happening all over the place. People speak up for Jesus, and there are miracles, and there are martyrs, and there are religious zealots, and there are pagan emperors who drop dead in the middle of their speeches, and there are shipwrecks and prison breaks and snake bites and just all kinds of awesome, wildly interesting stuff gathers around this gospel entourage that's pouring through the the Roman Empire. And yet every time, as Luke tells this story, relates this story, every time there's a major scene change in the book of Acts, Luke says the same thing. He He wraps up that scene and he says, And so the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. In other words, he personifies the word. He personifies the gospel. In other words, the gospel is traveler. And Luke is watching traveler. And as the gospel, as it moves through the world, it has this entourage. And we see Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Luke and Peter and Stephen. And all these different people come into play in this developing story. And what we'll see here in this passage are some of those characters, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, John Mark, Timothy, 
and Luke, the author himself, for the first time in the book of Acts, writes himself into the story. If you're wondering where Luke is, because he doesn't talk in the third person and name himself Luke went somewhere. That's not what he's doing. But if you're looking for where Luke is, he's in chapter 16, verse 10, in that little word, we. <laughs> that's, uh, that's Luke sort of waving at the camera for just a second to let us see he's there. Luke is there with the gospel entourage. The gospel is the traveler, and everywhere it goes, awesome, crazy things are happening. And so this passage really develops in three scenes. In each scene, I hope we're going to see by the time we're done, not just history, but each scene tells us something about the shape of our calling as faithful followers of Jesus. Scene one, when we argued over who was coming along. That's the shape of what happens in these early verses. Chapter 15, I'm going to start there. Chapter 15, verse 36. We pick up where we left off last week. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John, who was called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So in verse 36, what you see there is Paul is eager to go back and visit these newly planted churches with brand new Gentile believers from the first missionary journey, which we've looked at the last few weeks. Paul and Barnabas, right there at the outset of this passage, they are in agreement about the general strategy. Let's go back through the same places where we've just planted churches. They're new believers. Let's go back and strengthen them, reinforce them. Because after all, At most, they would spend three to four weeks in each of these places. So these believers got about three to four weeks of teaching, of foundations for discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus and what the Bible says about being a Christian. They got about four weeks, and then these guys got to go somewhere else and plant a church. So they're saying, let's go back through and let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the truths of the faith and ground them a little bit more deeply. So they agree about the strategy, but they don't agree about who should come along for the journey. And this scene really demonstrates where you see that heated discussion about whether or not to bring John Mark along. It, it, um, it puts into the foreground the human element of, of the mission of the church. Barnabas wanted John Mark to come Paul didn't want John Mark to come. And so before we start picking sides, right, and kind of thinking about who we think might be right or wrong, we need to understand a little bit more why there was this, his word, sharp disagreement about John Mark. Such a sharp disagreement that it led the two lions of the Gentile mission, Paul and Barnabas, to hit a fork in the road. One goes one way, the other one goes another. So this is some serious conflict. So Paul's, let's, let's do Paul's perspective first. Verse 38, Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. So if you want to go back, and we're, I'm not going to do it quite yet, but in just a second, we'll go back and we'll watch John Mark go AWOL. 
John Mark goes AWOL back in chapter 13, and we'll see that verse in just a second. But basically, Paul's point, you get the impression, Paul is basically saying, Barnabas, I love you. Uh, and, and I love John Mark too, but he's not ready. He needs to be in the oven a little bit longer. He is not done yet. He is, he's not ready for this kind of mission. He bailed on us just a year ago. I mean, one year ago, we turned around and looked and he was gone. And, and I just don't think one year is enough uh, for us to say he's ready. Basically, it's like, if you think about the geography of what's going on there. So let's assume that Pamphylia is Birmingham, Alabama. And basically, Paul's point would be to say, Remember, Barnabas, when we were there sharing the gospel uh, in the city of Birmingham, Alabama, and we turned around and Mark was gone and he had deserted us, and then we looked at our Life360 app and he was in northern Michigan? That's 800 miles. That's the, that's the distance from Pamphylia to Jerusalem. That's how much daylight Mark put between himself and the people he committed to go on mission with. So, 800 miles down the road, Paul is like, that's pretty significant, right? So several interpreters think that uh, John Mark's defection is not just an issue of him being uh, soft or homesick or, or something as, um, as small as that, but more likely, some interpreters argue that perhaps he was prejudiced, that the death of Jesus made these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, but working out the oneness, it, there's a lot of ink that's spilled in the New Testament about how hard it was for them to actually get these people into the same room, love each other, sit and hold space for their differences in areas of personal conviction. That was very difficult. We just saw it. A fight broke out in Acts chapter 15 last week. It wasn't easy to pull that off. Objectively, it was true, a work wrought by the cross, and yet Hammering it out on the anvil of relationship was a whole other issue. I won't go into all the arguments presented for reading John Mark's motive in that kind of way, except simply to say this, that when Luke tells the story in Acts 13, he puts two things, interestingly, maybe coincidentally, but he puts two things right next to each other. Here's the passage. It's on the screen. Then when he, Sergius Paulus, this is a very, very Gentile Roman elite, Roman governor, when Sergius Paulus saw what happened, he, that is the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So right after that, verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and went back to Jerusalem. That's just interesting. That, that makes one curious, right? So Gentile ruler believes John Mark has to go. John Mark deserts them at that particular place. Interestingly, John Mark doesn't go back to Antioch, the sending church. No, he goes to Jerusalem, which is going to become the hotbed of a debate over the full inclusion of the Gentiles, which we looked at last week. So there, there's some dot connecting. It's only plausible. There's some dot connecting there, but that would make sense of Paul's vigorous opposition to John Mark coming along. That's looking at it from, from Paul's side. Let's look at it from Barnabas' perspective. So Barnabas... You know, if you, were, if you were a little kid and you got to pick your grandpa out of these two, you're picking Barnabas. Uh, his, his name means son of encouragement. Everywhere you find Barnabas, he's generally a gracious, kind, warm-hearted person. That's his disposition. That's his constitution. That, that's God's grace in his life. Earlier, interestingly, earlier in Acts chapter 9, 
Christians in Jerusalem are raising an eyebrow about this young Christian leader named Saul of Tarsus. And guess who goes to bat for Saul of Tarsus and says, listen, don't count him out just because he's got a past. Listen to this brother. His life has been changed. Give him, an, give him a second to share his testimony. It was Barnabas advocating. It was Barnabas gunning for Paul. You can almost imagine Barnabas saying to Paul in this heated discussion, I did the same thing for you, bro. I, I had your back when everybody raised eyebrows about your viability for mission. And I'm just saying, don't kick this guy to the curb because he failed us once. Yes, he was flaky a year ago. Yes, full stop. But give the guy another chance. So who you got? <laughs> who, are you, who do you think is right in this scenario? Here's, here's the thing I think it's important for us to bear in mind. Luke doesn't tell us who's right. Luke doesn't uh, assign blame or, or uh, let us know that somebody got this wrong. Matter of fact, if we keep reading the New Testament, we find out all kinds of things really still fit together. Paul Paul didn't write John Mark off forever. Paul wasn't a kind of one and done, you know, you fail me once and, and it's over. In Colossians chapter four, Paul writes to the church and he says, guess who's with me? John Mark, he throws his arm over the shoulder. John Mark's right there with him, movingly in some of the very last words that the apostle Paul pens before he dies. Second Timothy chapter four, Paul says this, bring Mark, he's telling Timothy, bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. Paul wasn't finished with John Mark. Paul wasn't finished, by the way, with Barnabas, just because they had this heated debate and they had to go their separate ways. Paul continued to appreciate and respect Barnabas' ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he tells Corinth, Barnabas is one of the best servants we got out here doing God's work in the ministry, right? So he's commending Barnabas' ministry even after they had some friction and some discussion, right? So in the big picture, here's the thing for us to take away. Their separation, though sad, didn't harm the advance of the gospel, but in God's providence, instead multiplied the advance of the gospel. Because the result of this discussion, heated discussion, is two missionary teams rather than one missionary team. Barnabas is now gonna take John Mark, and this is in the genius of God, despite our disagreements and confusion about what to do. Do we zig or do we zag? God in his providence has other plans, higher plans. Barnabas is gonna go one way with John Mark. Paul's gonna take Silas. Both Silas and John Mark are gonna turn out to be, each of them, first round draft type people. I mean, they're, they're gonna go on to have extremely fruitful ministries. Paul, we're gonna see this next week when we look at the rest of Acts 16, which we couldn't fit in today. Later in this same chapter, Paul is gonna be singing, his back is flayed open from flogging. He's singing in a prison and there's a guy who rocks a harmony part and that guy is Silas. That tells you a little bit about Silas, about Silas's moxie, Silas's grit. And then what about John Mark? Well, John Mark goes on to write a book in the Bible that we call the Gospel of Mark. So I think we can call that a pretty serious comeback. Uh, it's an awesome thing. God uses him. He's the very first of all the Gospel writers. His was the one that was written first. You just back up. <laughs> Shout out to Luke for not ignoring the human element 
of the early church, the conflict, the, the disagreement, for, because we, we get to learn something from this, and it's, it's something like this. Here's the principle. Church life and gospel ministry will include the reality of disappointment. So, unpack that for a second. Without, without labeling Paul or Barnabas as misguided, isn't there a lesson, in one sense, from each side? Sometimes as Christians, um, we rush to affirm callings without patience, without due diligence, without process, without vetting them for doctrinal fidelity and gospel clarity. That's not, by the way, that theological vetting is not heady stuff. That's us contending for the priority of the clarity of the gospel. You can't put a high enough price on the importance of vetting someone for gospel fidelity. Also, vetting character. So, does this person have the temperament for this kind of work? Do they have the humility that allows them to work with others? Do they have flexibility for the sake of mission? These are the kinds of questions we should be asking rather than just, hey, send, send, send. The faster, the better. On the other hand, come at it from the other side. Sometimes as Christians or even as churches, we write people off. We say, yeah, they were flaky once. Um, we're not gonna get burned again. And so there's no Galatians 6 gently restoring those who have erred or those who have fallen short or sinned. We write people off. And you know, sometimes the person that we write off is ourselves. Christian songwriter Andrew Peterson wrote a song for his daughter and he wrote the song because he knew her self-talk was crushing. And he, he would say to her in the poetry of the song, he would talk about her not having full categories of gospel compassion when she looked in the mirror. And here's what his song says to his daughter. I know it's hard to hear it when that anger in your spirit is pointed like an arrow at your chest, when the voices in your mind are anything but kind and you can't believe your father knows best. And then Andrew Peterson, the dad, talks to his girl and over against the voices of self-loathing in her mind, Peterson tells his daughter, I love you just the way that you are. I love the way God is shaping your heart. And then the whole course is just him saying, be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. That's not soft Christianity, by the way. Even the, even the old Puritans, I mean, these are dyed in the wool, these are two by fours, the Puritans, right? The, the, even the Puritans talked about embracing the gentle promises of Jesus over against self-condemning voices. This is William Gurnall in his great work on spiritual warfare. He writes these words, the humble Christian is prone to think the worst of himself. Like the patriarchs who, when the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, took the blame to themselves, although they were innocent of the fact. I preached to a student conference uh, earlier this summer in, in Texas at my brother's church. And praying for these kids after session after session and then overhearing other people next to me praying for students after the session, 
it became very obvious that so many of these kids were battling shame. They feel like they're on the outside looking in. They feel like they, they, they have no concept of gospel-driven self-worth. And so the worship team was leading this song one night that helped them say these words to God. And they said, you're not done with me yet. And I looked around while we were singing this song, and I just watched these teenagers with tears streaming down their faces saying, you're not done. Understand this morning, Christian, God isn't done with you. He's not finished. God writes beautiful, beautiful redemption stories. It's one of his favorite things to do. Trust Jesus, run to Christ. This brings us to scene two of the gospel's traveling entourage. Scene two, when Timothy took one for the team. And what an understatement that is. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse one. Paul went on to Derbe and Lystra where the disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So I'm gonna be quick on this one because I used the word circumcision about 150 times last Sunday. Uh, and so I'll make this a little bit easier on all of us so we don't have to do this more than once. But here, here's the question. This begs to be answered. Is Paul suddenly contradicting himself? I mean, it's Acts 15. It sits right next to Acts chapter 16. Paul in, in chapter 15, along with James and Peter and others, is arguing vigorously that circumcision is not required for Gentiles to be saved. That's what the big point of Acts 15's argument and fight was. And then he turns around and he asks Timothy, a young man with a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, to be circumcised before joining the mission team. Is it a contradiction? The answer is, is no, it's not a contradiction. Timothy isn't circumcised in these opening verses of chapter 16 in order to be saved. He's circumcised in order to reach the Jews with the gospel. It's, it's a missional strategy, not a, a salvation formula. It's much, much different. Tim, so here's, put it all together. Timothy's Greek father and Timothy's Jewish mother made it potentially, hypothetically possible for Timothy to be a bridge that could reach into both worlds. They're going into places, they're going to synagogues. He can talk to Jews and he can talk to Gentiles. He's, he's got all of this inside of him. But no self-respecting Jew is going to give him a hearing because he categorizes himself as an apostate. His father didn't do the one thing that makes you truly Jewish, didn't circumcise him. And so the Jews are gonna do this when Timothy starts talking. And so what happens? They fought against circumcision in Acts chapter 15 because in Acts chapter 15, the gospel was at stake. In Acts chapter 16, the gospel isn't at stake itself in the circumcision of Timothy, but the hearing of the gospel by the Jews was at stake. Here's how John Stott comments on this in his commentary on Acts. What was unnecessary for acceptance with God was advisable for acceptance by some human beings. That's clarifying, that's really helpful. By the way, you gotta give it up for Timothy, right? 
I mean, this is, it had, had Paul asked me, um, do you want to come and join my missionary team? It's just going to involve minor surgical procedure, two sick days and you're back, frozen peas and you're, you'll be back in business, right? Is, is that what's going on? If Paul had asked me that, I would be like, uh, does Barnabas have any openings on his team? Uh, <laughs> Because I really want the Gentiles to hear the message of the gospel, right? Seriously, though, seriously, what's the reason? The reason that Timothy subjects himself to this kind of injury is his passion to reach the Jews with the gospel. And that is the only explanation. Yes, he was free before God to not need this for his salvation. And yet, at the same time, he was willing to give up his rights if it would mean the message would have one less hindrance. If it means the Jews are going to open their ears, they're going to take their hands off their ears, and they're going to listen to what I have to say. There's, the barrier's been removed between me and my audience. And that's the main thing. That's, nothing could be more important than that. Here's what Paul would say in Romans chapter 14. Welcome anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not judge the one who does because God has accepted him. Goes on in verse 13. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. And who did this? Timothy did it. He said, I don't want to put a stumbling block in front of them. Paul... It's interesting, Paul would later write this same church, the Philippian church. He would write this same church and he's trying to get some of them because there's friction in the church. There are women who are arguing in chapter four and other things that are going on. And he's trying to get them to stop arguing chapter two and complaining against each other. And Paul says, I'm gonna send somebody to you. And guess who Paul sends? Timothy. And he even tells them, this is why I'm sending Timothy to you particularly the Philippian church. He writes, Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And here Paul had in Timothy a person who manifestly did not seek his own interest, did not contend for his own rights. Christians, in our time and place, we talk a lot about our rights, especially here in this country. We talk a lot about our rights. We don't talk as much as the early church did about the concept of revoking our rights in the service of witness. To demonstrate that we follow a Lord who willingly suffered on behalf of those he came to save. Paul said, to the Jews I became as a Jew. To the Greeks I became as a Greek so that I might win them. It was a missional strategy, not a salvation formula. One more scene Luke gives us of the Gospels traveling entourage. Scene three, when we didn't know where we were going. Verse six of chapter 16. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, 
cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts, there's Luke again, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So just note what's happening there. They attempt to go to the Roman province of Asia, but they were, verse six, forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Then, so they say, okay, we can't go this way. Something's in the way. We'll turn north. They turn north, and the Spirit of Jesus, verse seven, did not allow them. We can only guess how the Spirit was preventing them. Was this uh, subjective impressions? Were prophets like Agabus or whoever calling them up and saying, you can't go there, Holy Spirit has revealed it, you can't do that. Was it subjective guidance? Was it subjective impressions? Or was it circumstances? Flight cancellations, passport issues, DMV. You know, I mean, what was going, we don't, we don't know exactly what it was, but something was blocking them and they saw it as a providential thing. They saw it through a theological Lens. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what it was. But these realities does, it does remind the early church and it reminds us of their dependence and our dependence on the spirit for the guidance that we desire. So in chapter 15, verse 36, Paul's planning was important and Paul's planning was approved and it was signed off on uh, by, by the Lord and by the church, right? But here in Acts chapter 16, we encounter something else. We encounter the limitation of human planning. We, we encounter the limitation of that. We, we see something else, the initiative of the spirit that prevents their attempts from doing the obvious. They're, they're just putting one foot in front of another. If we can't go here, we turn north, we go there. They're doing the kinds of things you would want them to do, you expect them to do, common sense kinds of things. And yet the spirit is interrupting them one place after another. And you can just imagine, climb into the passage for a second. Can you imagine how perplexing this is? This is? How frustrating this is. They've been on a roll. They're, they're going through city after city. Yes, there's hardship, but there's salvation. And they're just going further and further. The tent pegs of the kingdom and, and the gospel just goes further and further out. You ever... You ever been in a season of your life when it seemed like one open door led to another open door and another open door? And then you ever been in that other kind of season (laughs) where it seems like God's favorite two words are no and wait? That's frustrating, isn't it? Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's pregnancy. it's probably whatever you're thinking about right now while I'm talking about it. Something in your life where you feel like you're up against the wall and I don't understand why I'm not moving through this thing. I'm praying about it, I'm seeking the Lord about it and yet it just seems like no seems to be the answer all the time. And here in Acts, amid all these no's, we discover the why and the why is God had a different plan. God was closing some doors so that he could open some other doors. The gospel was eventually going to get to all these places that for now they can't go. The gospel was going to find all, matter of fact, when you read the letter of 1 Peter, he names all these places where the Spirit said don't go, and yet there's the gospel. Churches are found in all those places. God had a different plan. So in Troas, Paul has this vision of a Macedonian man asking for help. They interpret that dream as God is finally, we've got clear guidance where we're supposed to go. And so they travel to Troas, awesome things happen, crazy things happen in Troas as we'll see. But guess what they never find? The mystery Macedonian man. (laughs) 
right? So there's all kinds of things. It's like, okay, this, it doesn't totally add up. Even when we got guidance, we didn't necessarily find a Macedonian man waiting for us. I think one of God's intentions in the narrative of Acts chapter 16 is to say to us, get comfortable with uncertainty. Don't be paralyzed by uncertainty. Don't, don't force yourself to wait for liver shivers and mystical guidance before you can make a move. Be, be prepared to pray and to be patient and to put one foot in front of the other. Christians don't stop moving when the path grows dim. Let me say that again. Christians don't stop moving when the path grows dim. What do we do? We pray. We step out where God's will is perennially clear. And there are so many areas where God's will is perennially clear. We put one foot in front of the other. The book of Acts, it shows us the gospel's entourage. As they brought the message about Jesus to the world, it was accompanied by these things. It was accompanied by the reality of conflict. It was accompanied by a desire to remove hindrances to the gospel, even at great personal cost. It was accompanied by dependence on God's spirit, even when the path was unclear. We see these things travel with the gospel. Understand this morning, Christian friend, this is faithfulness. This is not just the shape of Christian faithfulness 2,000 years ago. This is faithfulness this week for you and me as followers of Jesus. They're, these are the kinds of stories, these stories, that's why I frame them with these quotes when this happened and when this happened. These are the kinds of stories that get told when we're not on the sidelines. When we're traveling in the gospel's entourage this week, a few questions. Will you this week trust God in the midst of an answer that sounds like no or wait? Will you absorb insults and injury if it means the gospel might be heard without hindrance? Will you believe the best and keep moving forward when Christians disappoint you? That's you and me living the faith. That's you and me living on mission. 